0: Thanks very much, Michelle. Uh, I'm going to keep this pretty short. Uh, this is just, excuse me, an opportunity uh, for the team leads to welcome all of you uh, both to Caltech, Pasadena, uh, and to Kiss. Uh, we are also really excited about this study. I think what we're most excited about is sort of diversity of expertise that we brought together for this meeting, uh, and I hope that'll inform some of the uh, conversations we have during the week and some of the solutions we uh, get to uh, towards the end of the week. Um, So I'm glad we could see a big turnout uh, for this talk. Uh, As Michelle said, I just wanted to introduce the other team leads. I'm Andy Thompson from Caltech. We have two co-leads from JPL. There's Becky Castaño, who's here, uh, and Max Coleman. And then we have one external co-lead, which is James Kinsey, who's coming from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Uh, And so the other thing I really want to do just right now is to do a big round of applause for Michelle Judd. Uh, essentially all of the, all of the stuff you see, all of this preparation was not due to the co leads So we we're hopefully leading the science side of it, but all of the preparation was really due to Michelle. Uh, so a big round of applause for there. <laughs> and so rather than listening to me, uh, we should get started on the science. And so I'm going to introduce, uh, Colin Devey, who will introduce us for speaker.
1: Thanks. Okay. So this is the introduction of the introduction of the introduction to the first talk. Um, Colin Devey from Guillemar in Kiel. Um, I found out yesterday I'm going to have to do this. So uh, this is uh, an introduction to Doug Wallace, a former colleague of mine, because Doug, after studying in East Anglia, a very nice part of the world, and doing his PhD in Dalhousie, uh, moved on to Brookhaven, where he was 11 years, 87 to 98, and then moved to Kiel in Germany to work in the Institute, where I also still work. after several long years in Germany, uh, about 13, I think, he then moved back to Dalhousie where he is presently uh, a Canadian Excellent Research Chair, Excellence Research Chair uh, on Ocean Science and Technology. Now, if you don't know these Canadian Excellence Research Chairs, they are really cool things. Uh, endowed with 10 million Canadian dollars over seven years. Um, there are only 18 have been awarded in all of Canada. Doug is one of them. So he's... Uh, Area of expertise is ocean carbon cycle, so I guess he's probably in the right place today. Um, ocean atmosphere exchange, things like SOLAS, Doug was uh, a big lead in SOLAS, um, and ocean time series observation. So we're going to get sort of out of the horse's mouth here about ocean carbon cycle. As James said to me this morning, we don't actually know what we're going to have to do at this workshop after Doug's told us what it's all going to be about. Um, A great colleague of mine uh, in times past, uh, we've just spent a week in in Halifax doing a graduate school together, so we're still collaborating, and I'm very pleased to introduce him and ask him to give us his talk.
2: Thanks, Colin, and I guess he's saving the rest of the stories until later. (laughs) There
1: was one about a train.
2: Yeah, that one you can definitely keep until later. Okay, so... um, well, first of all, a great pleasure to be here, and thank you to the organizers for, um, first of all, putting together this, uh, uh, this event, because I think this is exactly the right time to apply new technologies, especially new measurement platforms, to an old problem, uh, the problem of the ocean carbon cycle. And uh, as I think you'll see uh, throughout my presentation, we are quite seriously data-limited um, in the ocean, and with the growing attention to how things are right now and how things are going to be in the next decades, and this endless controversy you read about in the papers—certainly read about it in the Canadian papers—about um, uh, CO2, uh, fossil fuel emissions, and, and climate change. Then this is very timely to make the best use of new technologies. Now, in covering this, it's impossible to cover this in 30 minutes. Um, this topic. So I'm hoping that follow-on speakers, um, and you know, will cover some aspects which I'm definitely going to avoid. Uh, I'm going to focus very much on the issue of anthropogenic carbon. I'm just going to make sure I can press the right button here. And the question is, what is anthropogenic carbon? Basically, there are two flavors, or something you might see, I'll try and color code them in black and red, two colors of of carbon. One is, we're going to call it natural carbon. It's uh, the carbon dioxide and dissolved CO2, which has always been in the ocean. Um, It's uh, got a very variable distribution in the ocean. Its variation of the inorganic carbon uh, varies uh, with parameters like temperature and oxygen. Its concentration is on the order of 2,000 micromoles per kilogram or micromoles per liter of seawater. And then there's this stuff we call excess carbon or anthropogenic carbon. And the amount of that in the ocean is much less. As you can see, 0 to 70. Actually, it's probably creeping up close to 80 micromolar now. The amount in the ocean is also variable, um, and it depends on the exposure history of ocean waters to the changed atmosphere of the past 200 years. So therefore, its concentration distribution also correlates with parameters like temperature, uh, but more with water mass age. That's a kind of strange concept, and with vertical motions in the ocean, especially the vertical motions which connect the ocean interior with the sea surface. And ironically, um, even though this is a dissolved gas, Uh, because of the buffer chemistry of seawater, the concentration at the surface of the ocean of um, uh, anthropogenic carbon is positively correlated with temperature. Now, we can make this distinction uh, between the two flavors mainly because we make an, an assumption based on pretty good evidence that at least as we're coming out of the Holocene, and you can see that on the lower plot there, that the concentration or the distribution of carbon dioxide between the atmosphere, the ocean, and the terrestrial biosphere was more or less, wasn't completely, but more or less in steady state. So you can see uh, from ice core data, uh, high-resolution ice core data, relatively little variability of atmospheric CO2 uh, as recorded in the ice cores compared to the massive increase we've encountered over the past 200 years. So that's the basis for being able to separate natural carbon from anthropogenic carbon. We're assuming that the ocean carbon cycle... For several thousand years before the Industrial Revolution or the beginning of agriculture, major agriculture, was in steady state. Okay, so what is the uptake of anthropogenic CO2? It's a perturbation of a continual exchange, an ongoing natural exchange of CO2 between the atmosphere and the ocean. And that natural exchange is dominated by physical and biogeochemical effects. Um, it's represented here in this classical picture of the flux of CO2 between the atmosphere and the ocean on annual scale. Uh, annual scales. That picture you're seeing there, which shows red is places where CO2 is leaving the ocean, blue is places where CO2 is entering the ocean. That is, even though that's a modern picture or map, it's actually a, a picture that would have looked identical 200, 250 years ago. And basically as we increase, add CO2 to the atmosphere, what we do is we make those sink regions, which are blues and purples, we make them stronger But not only that, we make the source regions, places where CO2 is leaving the atmosphere, the reds, for example, and the yellows, we make them weaker. So we're changing the driving gradient for gas exchange of CO2 between the atmosphere and the ocean. And both both, uh, cause the amount of CO2 in the ocean uh, to increase. And we call that increase over the pre-industrial levels excess CO2 or the anthropogenic CO2. Now, to first order, and... I'm going to stick on the first-order processes. It's been argued for decades that ocean biological processes don't directly uh, drive excess CO2 uptake. Uh, It's driven primarily by the increase of CO2 in the atmosphere and the natural uh, uh, background CO2 levels in the ocean. Now, that assumption, which I'm going to continue to make, is probably becoming increasingly untenable, but we're going to stick with it for this talk. And then we think about how we detect this anthropogenic CO2 in the, in the ocean. I mean, the atmospheric scientists have it easy. Of course, they don't really. But you know, they're dealing with one molecule, almost only one molecule, CO2. They're dealing with a well-mixed atmosphere, well, almost well-mixed atmosphere. And they've got good measurement techniques for getting at that, <coughs> initiated by Charles Keeling, of course, and others. And the surface ocean, we know, should track the slow, relatively slow buildup of atmospheric pCO2. Uh, But let's have a look at a place that's relatively quiet in the ocean, like Bermuda, quiet, well, relatively quiet, except for hurricanes. Low productivity, relatively low productivity. That's a place where you'd think you should be easy to see the buildup of CO2 in the surface ocean. But when you look at the data, and this is one of the very few places of the ocean where we presently have a a time series like this, stretching back into the early 80s and actually a little bit beyond that, um, we see that um, pCO2... Uh, in the middle panel there, has an enormous season cycle, much, much stronger than even the northern hemisphere atmosphere, and a lot of noise, a lot of interannual variability that has to be factored out. And Somewhere in that variability, you can just about see the long-term buildup of CO2 due to the uptake of anthropogenic CO2, and the decrease in pH, which is associated with it, the ocean acidification, and the alkalinity, which is plotted on the top there, been already sort of uh, normalized a little bit, but is relatively invariant. But we've got a detection problem here. And when we go into the deep water, you know, we already are facing a lot of natural variability of uh, inorganic carbon going ranging as a function of water mass age, reflecting the solubility and the biological pumps of the natural cycling of ocean. So we see variability, of course, between the North Atlantic and the deep North Pacific, for example. And this in alkalinity we also see spatial variability although as I say I'm going to assume that the alkalinity of the ocean is still despite ocean acidification still in steady state. Okay so if we go out into the ocean as many groups have done this is an example of a work by a NOAA group out of AOML Rick Wanenkoff, and co-workers and they go out and they measure a section down through the ocean collect water samples measure the inorganic carbon concentration back in the whoops in the 90s, and then do it again, like six to 10 years later. Oh, sorry, this is, yeah, yeah 2005, and then um, compare it to data on the same section measured in 1989, and just subtract the two. You hope you would see the buildup of anthropogenic CO2 between, over that six year period. And that's shown there on the right, and you really can't see very much at all. Uh, the, the signal, it's probably in there, but is dominated by uh, variability associated with biological processes. And also, of course, circulation and eddy variability. But we can see the build-up if we look carefully enough. And um, frankly, it's much easier than dealing with the terrestrial biosphere. So, in that sense, okay, the atmospheric scientists have it easy. The ocean scientists, it's not easy, but it's doable. And as you can imagine, the terrestrial biosphere is an extremely difficult uh, uh, carbon reservoir to keep track of. Okay, so we remember these two flavors, right? So. And you see these two flavors on these classical diagrams. Uh, This is the one from the latest IPCC reports, just come out. And you can see the natural cycle in black and the red uh, uh, perturbation to that natural cycle uh, of the anthropogenic carbon uh, fluxes, or the fluxes associated with um, uh, human activity, either directly or indirectly. And I think most of you have seen those diagrams. You've seen many, many of them, and you know the numbers probably. Um, I, when I look at those numbers, I, they drive me crazy. When I look at those uh, diagrams, they always drive me crazy, just because um, look how high that volcano is, and look there's no volcano on the sea floor, and um, look um, how small that ocean is, <laughs> and look all the fossil fuel is under the land, and yeah, you know, there's lots, obviously lots wrong with these pictures, but they're, they're convenient cartoons of what's going on. Okay, so how do we observe the increase of anthropogenic CO2 in the presence of all that variability um, there's two, well, there's three, three basic ways. One is modeling, which I'm only going to cover as a, as a point of comparison. We we'll focus on data or observation-based estimates. One is an approach that stretches back many decades to work uh, initiated by Peter Brewer and Arthur Chen and others, um, based on measurements of carbon, of carbon in the ocean, and correcting that on the basis of things like oxygen and temperature and salinity and alkalinity, uh, for trying to remove some of the natural carbon vel- variability. Uh, from that carbon signal to get something called preformed inorganic carbon. And then you measure, once you've done that for the present day, you've got to make some assumptions, try and guess really what the distribution of, of that same quantity was in pre industrial times. And even though it sounds really tricky, and I can show you a fl- flow chart to see how tricky it really is, it, it actually does sort of work. But it gives you, in a sense, a snapshot of the amount of carbon now. Versus how much was there 250 years ago, when the uh, variability of respiration and, cal- and calcium carbonate dissolution and other biogeochemical properties have been taken out, and the other approach is a proxy approach or a tracer-based approach, usually based on transient tracers like the chlorofluorocarbons, uh, which have increased in time in the atmosphere and the ocean, like CO2 or somewhat like CO2. Um, you need a transfer function to get from the tracer to anthropogenic carbon. And that's usually based on that kind of difficult concept of water mass age. Um, some nice uh, approach has been developed relatively recently. This is an ongoing uh, uh, process of developing better ways to do this. And it, gives you the, it can give you the time history of anthropogenic carbon in the ocean. But again, even though at the moment this looks like a very powerful technique, we'll look at it in a moment, it's important to remember that it's based on traces which are not perfect analogs of CO2. There's many differences in their behavior. It assumes, they tend to assume constant physical circulation over time, which may or may not be valid, and uh, it also makes some assumptions about how the uh, atmosphere and the surface ocean uh, have uh, how that disequilibrium between the the two reservoirs have varied over time. So even though there's a lot of assumptions in there as well, maybe less, uh, in some ways, less uh, uh, killing than for some of the back calculation techniques. Anyway, that sort of, um, actually it was a a bit of a hybrid between, oops, I keep doing this sorry, hybrid between these led to the first estimate based on observations um, of the amount of anthropogenic CO2 in the oceans. Uh, this is referenced to a midpoint in the 1990s, the midpoint of the WOS survey. I was involved in the, in the organization of this survey, it was a mega effort. And, but on the basis, in the end of eight years of work going out to sea in all ocean basins and measuring everything under the sun and, uh, and doing a lot of work on data quality control, we were able to put a pretty good, what we thought was a pretty good estimate on the inventory of anthropogenic carbon in the oceans, published by Chris Sabine back in 2004. And of course there you can see the error bars, you know, you can argue about them a little bit, but they're not too bad. Uh, That's the inventory in petagrams of carbon. Uh, On the lower it's just petagrams of carbon, not petagrams of carbon per year, excuse me. And the atmosphere, we know that from observations very well, how much excess CO2 there is in the atmosphere. And Knowing those two numbers and having good estimates for the emissions of fossil fuel, just fossil fuel and cement, no uh, no land use here, we can solve for the the balance of the terrestrial biosphere over the previous 200 years. And that turned out to be not really very significantly different from zero. It was a bit of a surprise. A small source from the terrestrial biosphere over the 200 years in the time when we were chopping down trees, chopping around raised fossils, promoting agriculture and doing, building cities, doing pretty much everything we could do to the land. Uh, in the end, uh, you end up with a small net source, which was barely uh, detectable. Now, there's more recent estimates by Katawala and others. This is a, a refinement of some of the tracer approaches. It's, it's a very elegant approach. I don't have time really to go into it. It's based on um, Uh, transit time distributions in the context of a model. Um, It's it's a step forward for sure. I don't think it's the the final, uh, final step forward, but it's based on CFC data and really not based very much on CO2 data. So actually, this estimate could be done almost without CO2 data. You do need to know what the surface distribution of the partial pressure of CO2 is in the present time to apply this technique. But it actually doesn't make use of interior ocean carbon data. And that's the inventory now. It actually looks pretty simple to what Chris published back in 2004. We've got information for the Arctic now where we didn't before. And we can start to compare that inventory, which is the top left here from the called green function, how much is in the ocean with how much is estimated from other techniques and especially six different models, the lower two panels here and the four panels on the right here. And the first point here you can see we have a lot of estimates from models, and this isn't all of them. There are probably 10 to 20, probably 20 different models of this uh, uptake. We have very few data-based estimates. I just want to make that point. And you can see the similarities and differences between all of them. So, I'm not going to go into more detail, but it's, they, not all models give the same distribution, and not all models approach the distribution inferred from the tracer-based estimate uh, based on observations. So we go to the new IPCC budget. This is just again, just came out a couple of weeks ago, and we look at the budget now on the left. It's the 1750 to 2011 balance of excess carbon, the atmospheric increase, the fossil fuel release, which actually is a little bit less certain now than it used to be, Um, the ocean to atmosphere flux based primarily on that uh, green function or, or the, uh, the Katawala type estimate there, and the land-to-atmosphere flux by difference. And you can see that the result for by difference of the land-to-atmosphere flux by difference is not so different from that of Sabine at all. And the IPCC using the um, uh, various estimates and over time can start to break down the budget over, um, over decades. Although that's Again, assumes for the ocean that the ocean circulation does not vary. Now, when we actually compare the Katowala et 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 al. approach, which is based basically on tracer data collected during the Woese era in the mid-1990s, and then he can extrapolate the uptake of anthropogenic CO2 back through time. So he can get a time resolution of the uptake, and that's shown in this uh, figure in the red. I should look at it here can't really, yeah, yeah, in the red lines on both panels here. And so you can see that, uh, well, the, the uptake rate has changed very uh, uh, gradually and smoothly from the katawala approach and then compare that to about four to six different uh, models and which show more variability in the uptake year-to-year. Year. Um, there's year-to-year uh, year climate forcing variability in, in those models. But more importantly, I think you start to see that the overall trend looks different between the, the biological the, the, the GCMs and this more tracer-based, uh, empirical modeling approach of Catawalla at all. And that's uh, maybe blown out when you look at the ratio of ocean uptake to fossil fuel release here and then compare it with an earlier compilation of model outputs, so-called GCP 2011, you start to see some of these differences even more. So when we're looking at time trends now, there doesn't seem to be complete consistency Um, even though the inventories tend to agree between the models and the uh, uh, observation-based estimates. The geographical distribution of the anthropogenic carbon is a bit different between the models and the observation-based estimates, and now the time trends start to seem a little bit different, suggesting... Well, I don't know what it suggests, really. Okay, so that's two approaches. Back calculation, uh, TTD, or green function, uh, approach using traces, question would be can we use inorganic carbon data that we actually collect? Now we're able to collect data uh, and uh, in different decades of high accuracy and compare them. Can we actually make use of uh, uh, estimate anthropogenic carbon storage directly from repeated high quality surveys? And this was work which I pioneered <laughs> have to say decades ago uh, now um, and we actually even got some specific time on the German research vessel Meteor to redo some uh, stations which had been previously occupied by the US Transient Tracers in the Ocean program, the North Atlantic Survey. We took Meteor and we did this zigzag trip across the North Atlantic, um, trying to get as many stations that were occupied in the 80s, repeat them again in 2004, and measure the same things to see if we could detect the anthropogenic carbon buildup from the DIC measures themselves. And in order to do that, a graduate student, Carsten Freese and I, and others, developed a very <clears throat> quasi-statistical, some people would say unstatistical uh, approach to estimating this buildup between two surveys of carbon. Uh, it's been poured over and criticized by statisticians ever since, so hopefully there's none in the audience. Um, but what we did was we uh, previously knew that multiple regression was a very good way to factor out uh, variability of inorganic carbon. And Carsten Fries actually uh, came to this idea of, he established a regression, multiple linear regression for data inorganic carbon measured in 1981. He used the same rate regression equation for the new data set at that time, collected in 2004, and he just subtracted the coefficients of the two regressions and arguing that uh, that would allow him to estimate the anthropogenic carbon uh, according to that uh, formulation uh, you see below. And it seems like magic, right? And so a lot of people call this the magical linear regression approach, not the multiple linear regression (coughs) approach. But it does, well, with some caveats, I have to say, sort of work. This is just the example for that section I showed you earlier. earlier. Um, On the top left is you see the distribution of the anthropogenic carbon calculated using this quasi-statistical approach. Now in this case, even though you're just measuring things over 20 years, we've actually extrapolated back over the previous 200 years and would present this as the total amount of anthropogenic carbon uh, 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 in the water column. You can start to see little signals in the deep western boundary current of the the Caribbean there. You can see a signal, quite deep signal, extending over the the mid-ocean ridge. Um, You can start to see interesting variability which can actually be um, uh, uh, retrieved to some extent by these uh, tracer-based approaches using the CFCs. That's what's shown in the bottom left panel. Although I think you can see over the mid-ocean ridge, especially over the western side of the mid-ocean ridge, you see a deep penetration of anthropogenic carbon in the the statistical approach, which you don't see uh, based on the tracer approach. And that's because the water there is just too old to have CFCs in it but probably is old enough to have anthropogenic carbon in it. So you start to pick this up. And uh, then finally, you look in the, uh, the right panel. That's carbon tetrachloride. That's an, an anthropogenic halo which started being released to the atmosphere back in the 1920s uh, compared to the CFCs released in the 1940s and 50s. And so, again, you can start to see some carbon tetrachloride over the ridge, which suggests that, indeed, there is anthropogenic, um, anthropogenic carbon there as well. So it doesn't look too bad, I think. So we can estimate storage by repeat surveys. Then the third approach, I guess, another approach is, and this is a sort of second iconic uh, picture, is the Takahashi climatological CO2 flux. And this is based on measurements of the partial pressure of CO2 in the surface water, as close to the surface as you can get, and in the atmosphere, uh, and uh, applying knowledge of the gas solubility for CO2 and of a gas exchange coefficient, which is a function of well, many things, but let's say for now, wind speed. Um, And if you make those measurements of the surface water PCO2, which has a lot of variability, um, then you can retrieve the flux. And Taro Takahashi was the pioneer in this, in compiling all available data for those surface water measurements, quality controlling them, putting them together, and estimating the uh, uh, global flux of of, uh, CO2. This is now... Natural and anthropogenic, both flavors, uh, and, um, and this was recently updated by Rick, Rick Wannenkoff last year. Um, and when you add that up, an, an, one, one year, one climatological year, I think in for Rick's estimate it's the year 2000. All the data available have been cl- for over 40 years have been collapsed onto the year 2000, so you can get the seasonality. You have enough data to look at the seasonality, and you estimate the flux over one year over that one year and you end up with a number of two petagrams per year for the anthropogenic carbon flux. Now, that anthropogenic carbon flux, you can see it up at the top there, is the global net flux from that map, uh, but compensated for an efflux of CO2 which must be leaving the ocean as a result of the addition of riverine carbon. So that riverine carbon, which is added all the time, has always been added to the ocean, has to be going somewhere. Uh, Some of it is buried as calcium carbonate in the sediments, but some of it is definitely leaving to the atmosphere. So from the global flux estimated there, you have to basically add on half a petagram uh, of carbon per year to compensate for the river inputs uh, of carbon. So that looks pretty good, and the number two sounds exactly right. It's exactly what the other estimates and the models give, so um, it's probably probably a reliable estimate, but there are real serious data limitations. And this is a, a map of the number of months in each grid, grid box uh, where at least one measurement of PCO2 had been measured over the previous 40 years. And you can see there's quite a lot of the ocean where that number is one, maybe one measurement in one month. Um, other places in some parts of the ocean where no measurements had been made at all. And other places, you can see the North Atlantic and the North Pacific pretty well covered, really, in comparison. But this is just the number of months in the climatology. This doesn't say the number of years uh, for which there were data. So this means that our ability to resolve from data interannual variability of that air CO2 flux um, and trends is very, I would say, impossible. Some people try to do it. Um, you've got another problem that you're collapsing data collected over four decades onto a single year, and that means you're having to take into account the fact that the atmosphere and the ocean have, have gone up over that time and compensate for that somehow. So you have to correct for some sort of trend in your data. How you do that is a little bit, a little bit of an art form, or, or uh, depending who you talk to. And we've really got no real data in most regions of the ocean to assess interannual or interdecadal variability. Hmm. I'm in trouble. That's the yellow thing. Just went on. Did it didn't go on long ago? You've got, four got four minutes. Okay, so I'm going to skip over the variability, <laughs> um, and I'm going to try and do this because this is important to do. But basically, there, there are some estimates of variability. Um, the contemporary sea flux it can be calculated on a global scale. On a global scale, it's like I said, pre-industrial flux is equal to the river in input minus the burial. Um, On regional scales, this mass balance is much more complicated because of transport. And the pre-industrial ocean, uh, there was a non-zero air-sea CO2 flux associated with divergence and convergence of CO2 within different ocean uh, regions, uh, as well as the the input of uh, riverine input. And on top of that, uh, spatially variable air-sea CO2 flux associated with convergence and divergence of ocean carbon is we've got a spatially variable anthropogenic air-sea CO2 flux. Um, built on top. Can we separate these different components? This is stuff Jürgen Holfert, a postdoc of mine, uh, worked on uh, heavily um, uh, Whoops, a long time ago, <laughs> again, but it's been done uh, properly since, I would say. We took estimates of, we took ocean sections where carbon was measured, and that's represented by the red lines there. We used estimates of water mass transports across those sections, so north-south transports of water at different places along the hydrographic section and different depths and we integrated that up. We integrated that for the DIC or the TCO2 we measure in the water column now. You can see how long ago we did that, this 1990s TCO2, from transports. We did the same thing, we estimated the anthropogenic carbon using one of those trick techniques, the tracer or the back calculation techniques, and we did the same thing for the anthropogenic carbon and then we subtracted the two um, to get, and, and also in the intervening regions of the ocean, we estimated how much storage it was, how the inventory of carbon was building up over time, um, and then we were able then to solve for the pre-industrial DIC flux. We're assuming the ocean was in steady state in the pre-industrial era, which allowed us from these pre-industrial transports to estimate sinks and sources of CO2 uh, for the pre-industrial ocean, but we could do the same for the anthropogenic CO2 by the divergence and the convergence and the storage estimate estimate the anthropogenic CO2 uptake in different regions of the ocean surface. Now this has been done by Nicky Gruber and others and uh, in in great detail uh, for the whole ocean now with with models, with model-based circulation. Those estimates were based on hydrographic transects and geostrophy, basically, together with Ekman uh, divergence estimates. Using models, you can do that, and so you can do it, for example, for the whole North Atlantic. And this is an idea of the transport now just of anthropogenic carbon in the North Atlantic from different models. Uh, The storage rate in different parts of the ocean, again, based on uh, model-based storage estimates for the different uh, parts of the uh, the Atlantic Ocean, south and north. And then, therefore, you can calculate the anthropogenic carbon flux, knowing the transport convergence or divergence and the storage calculate the, the flux of anthropogenic carbon, see a big uptake close to the southern ocean, a big uptake in the subtropic, tropics, and so on. This looks really powerful. On the other hand, for the transports in the North Atlantic, those are the death estimates from Holfert et al. and other workers based on real transects along 24 degrees north, cutting across the Gulf Stream. You can see they're very different from the model based transports, suggesting that One of the circulations, the model circulation, or the circulation based on the hydrographic sections, is probably wrong. Okay, so there's not complete agreement. Personally, I think the data are right and the models getting the transport through the Florida Straits and the Gulf Stream wrong, but it seems to, the argument goes on and on. Roson et al, and Perez et al, published a really nice paper in in, uh, Nature Geosciences last year where they broke the North Atlantic up into different boxes and applied this data-based approach and from measuring ocean transports at different stages of the NAO, they started to be able to tease apart different air sea fluxes uh, for the subpolar gyre depending on whether you're in a positive or negative phase of the NAO. A lot to be done probably for this sort of approach. We're also data limited though, okay. So this is my final slide, so I'm almost done. Um, Status report. So where are we? Well, in the 1990s, we were asking the question, and in the early 2000s, we were asking the question, how much excess CO2 is there in the oceans, and where is it? And I think, actually, we got a pretty good answer to that question. Uh, We largely answered the question, although a few small details were out there, including some disagreement about the role of the Southern Ocean. I'd say we probably even got that sort of half-nailed by now. But the next quick big questions are much more demanding of data and our knowledge of uh, circulation and, and forcing. And that is, can we attribute atmospheric CO2 growth rate changes, which we know are taking place from year to year and from decade to decade, uh, on timescales that might be useful for understanding what's going on with our uh, carbon management if, if we were to do such a thing, uh, and especially in the variable magnitude of the land sink versus the ocean sink. And that means that we have to have a much better handle on ocean sink variability, which is not out of reach, but I'd say we don't have it yet. Um, And, of course, then the big question is, how will the ocean uh, uptake behave in the future? You saw that those different trends between different models and and database estimates for the long-term change in the oceanic CO2 uptake. That could suggest that some of our models used for prediction are maybe not capturing all the physics or all the important... uh, Uh, processes. And then last but not least, and uh, this is something for the workshop, is uh, related, is once we know where the excess CO2 is going and how rapidly it's increasing, uh, we should be able to answer where in the ocean will acidification have its largest impact. So we need um, to identify and understand the uptake process. Um, We need to know where and how the uh, anthropogenic carbon is taken up. But especially now, we need to know the spatial and the temporal variability of the CO2 flux and what determines that variability. What are the controlling uh, physics and chemistry and, not mentioned it, but biological processes um, uh, which determine the variability in space and time of that uptake process. For all these questions, we need ocean data and models to work together like they have up until now. But especially, in order to just get over this overwhelming problem of collecting data, Uh, we need new technologies which will help us to resolve the variability in space and time much better than we've ever been able to do before. Thank you.